For more than 40 years, Dr. David Jeremiah has faithfully preached God's Word. And as the world changes, how the message is delivered expands. Turning Point Plus was created as the next step in our digital broadcast ministry. And it's available instantly when you sign up to support Turning Point with an automatic monthly gift of any amount. Learn more and access more than 12,000 audio and video messages at turningpointplus.org. Christians who once put their faith in Christ alone are being led astray by false teachings that require more for salvation. Could it happen to you? Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah takes a closer look at the major false teachings that have compromised believers from ancient times until now. From Christ Above All, here's David to introduce the compelling conclusion of his message, Beware. I don't know if you have ever studied the book of Colossians before. Maybe you've never read it before. It doesn't take very long to read it. But the book is filled with truth that was very helpful to us today, keeping us off dead-end streets and on the main road. And I hope you're discovering that as we study it together. We'll get back to um, the final part of Beware, Colossians 2, 8 to 23. But before we go there... Let me remind you again that we're coming to your area this fall. If you live in Raleigh, North Carolina, we'll be there October the 6th in the PNC Arena. If you live in Orlando, Florida, we'll be at the Amway Center on October the 13th. And then on Thursday, October the 20th in Greenville, South Carolina at the Bon Secor Wellness Arena. And then on Friday, November the 11th, we'll be in Buffalo, New York at the Key Bank Center. Uh, These events are free, but they require tickets. You need to have a ticket, and the way you get your tickets is to go to davidjeremiah.org slash tour. There you will find everything you need to do to order your tickets. They'll be sent to your home. You'll be in good order to come and join us for these nights of worship and study. Great um, ministry of music with Michael Sanchez and his team, and then the study of the Word of God, and it'll just be a time of great blessing. And we haven't been able to get together for a few months, so this is really exciting to be able to be back and to do this again. I hope you'll join us if we come to your area. So now it's time for us to finish up our discussion of Colossians chapter 2. This is part 2 of the message entitled, Beware. One of the things that becomes obvious to us as we study Colossians is the fact that much of the false doctrine that was creeping into the church was a holdover from Judaism. Many of the converts of the early church were Jewish converts. They'd grown up with all kinds of rituals and ceremonies, and when they accepted Christ, they struggled to leave behind their Jewish way of life. So many battles were fought over ceremonies and feasts and dietary restrictions. And one of the most stubborn battles that they fought over in the early church was this ceremony of circumcision. Now, for us today, this is a very indelicate subject to talk about. But for a Jew, it was central to their religion and central to their orthodoxy. Circumcision was a minor surgical operation that involved the removal of a small portion of flesh from an infant Jewish boy when he was eight days old. This Jewish ceremony was instituted by God as a sign and seal of the Abrahamic covenant. It was solely a Jewish thing. 
But Paul, instead of arguing against the fact that this shouldn't be included in the gospel, uses the Old Testament ceremony to help the Colossians understand that there is a kind of circumcision that we undergo as Christians. He calls it a circumcision without hands. He says that our circumcision as Christians is a spiritual one. In fact, in another place, the great apostle refers to it as the circumcision of the heart. At salvation, listen to me, believers undergo a spiritual surgery, which Paul describes in this text as the putting off of the body and the sins of the flesh. This is the new birth. This is the new creation. This is conversion. If you're a Christian, that's spiritual circumcision. The Gnostics wanted to force the Colossian believers to undergo Old Testament physical circumcision as a requirement for salvation and spiritual enlightenment. Paul is refuting this with every ounce of mental and spiritual strength available to him. If anything is added to the faith requirement of salvation, that addition, whatever it is, negates the whole process. Listen to me. It's not just about circumcision. People teach today that if you're not baptized after you accept Christ, you're not a Christian. Baptism in that regard is a work, not faith. Some people say if you don't join the church, you're not a Christian. Some people say if you don't do certain regimentations and rituals, you can't be a Christian. Let me say it as clearly as I can. There's only one thing you need to do to be a Christian, and that's to put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your personal salvation. That's it. If somebody comes along and says, oh, no, but you need to be baptized, or you say, wait a minute. I read my Bible, and my Bible says I'm complete in him. If I'm complete, what else do I need? We'll get to baptism in a few moments because it's important. But it is not important in order that you become saved. It's important because you are saved. And it's a picture of what's happened to you in your life. The Gnostics wanted to bring all of this into the salvation experience of the Christians and muddy the waters. Paul takes a right turn right in the middle of this passage, and he does deal with baptism. He says in verse 12, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. The outward affirmation of the already accomplished inner transformation is the believer's baptism by water. You say, Pastor Jeremiah, it really seems strange to me. We honor baptism. You say, why would you do that? Why don't you just get a little water and sprinkle it on our head? Well, the answer to that is right here in this text. Baptism, water baptism, is a picture of what has happened to you in your life. Paul said, we are buried with him in baptism, and we are raised again in resurrection. When you are baptized, you are painting a picture for the whole world to see that you have been identified in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reason that I say that is because the mode of baptism is not unimportant. If the picture you're trying to paint doesn't match the reality you're trying to paint it of, it doesn't work. Baptism by immersion is a perfect picture of what happens to you when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. You know what happens at that moment? The Bible says you become identified with Jesus Christ in his death and burial and in his resurrection. You then are saying to the world, I have been buried with Christ. I am risen with Christ. 
I am a Christian. And that's why we baptize the way we do. That's why if you haven't been baptized, you haven't had your picture taken yet. You need to go get your picture taken. And baptism doesn't make you a Christian. It's the first command you are given as a Christian. The first thing you're supposed to do once you become a Christian is to be outward about your faith and be baptized. I'm glad I got to say that in this message. Because I know some of you are hanging out out there. You're saying, no, I'm not going to do that. It is the, first of all, it's a command of God. And here's the other thing. The Bible commands me to go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize those who are saved. I can't baptize you if you aren't willing, so you're making me disobedient. Did you know that? (laughs) You need to get baptized because that's the command of the Scripture. So here's intellectualism. We talked about ritualism. Here's the third one, legalism. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And Jesus has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, Paul pictures the Colossians' sins as a charge list. In ancient times, these charges were listed out against a person, and if he signed it, it was an admission in his own hand of his debt. The Greek word for charge is an interesting word. It's the word which is translated by the word autograph. In other words, here's all my sins, everything that I've done, and I'm signing it at the bottom. According to Paul, our guilt before God is immeasurable. Our failure to obey God and our disobedience of what God tells us to do, all those things become a part of the charge list. Martin Luther helps us with this. He experienced one time the reality of this truth. He had a dream, and he said in his dream, he was visited at night by Satan, and Satan brought him in his dream a record of his own life written with his own hand. The tempter said to him, is that true? Did you write this? And poor terrified Luther had to confess it was all true. Scroll after scroll was unrolled, and the same confession was wrung from him again and again and again. Finally, the evil one prepared to leave, having brought Luther down to the lowest place in his life in his dream. Suddenly, Luther thought of something. He turned to the tempter and he said, It is true. Every word of it is true. But write this across that scroll. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. Amen? I think that's the greatest visual we've ever had right there. (laughs) Now, Paul said, because you've been forgiven, all your sins have been taken away. Don't get caught up in trying to add to that with your legalistic life. Verses 16 and 17, he says, So don't let anyone judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of things to come, but the substance is Christ. He says, now that you're a Christian, don't get caught up in all the rules and regulations people want to throw on you so that you can prove that you're a Christian. There's none of that in the Scripture, none of it. He kind of coalesces these things around, first of all, the diets. He says, don't let anybody judge you in food or drink. 
You know, I've been a pastor here for 40 years, and one of the most memorable times in my life was during the time I was going through cancer. And I have to tell you, I got so much literature from people. You know those boxes you put your business statements in? They have a little box, the top fits on them. I had two or three of those full of literature people sent me about how I should eat, how I should change the way I eat. If you eat this way, you're going to get better. I would look at me. Some of them made sense. I'll be honest with you. I drank carrot juice for a whole month. My wife said it was turning me yellow. Was it good? Probably. But here's the point. The Judaizers, the teachers were taking it further than just a suggestion. They were saying, you have to eat these certain things in order for you to continue to have your Christian experience. And they put diets into doctrine. I read recently about a young man who suffered from a crippling form of arthritis. After he became a Christian, he met this doctor who put him on this incredible wonder diet. The basic philosophy behind this particular diet was, you must never eat a meal that includes both proteins and carbohydrates. And the young man swore that he had been healed completely by the diet and in his enthusiasm of his new faith and his new diet, he began to push the people in his church for the incorporation of this new diet into the doctrinal statement of the congregation. In other words, if you come to this church, you accept Jesus Christ, and oh, by the way, here's the diet you have to live on in order to stay healthy. Well, this went on for some time, argument after argument, and one day they were arguing about this issue in a church meeting, and another young Christian in the church membership who had been saved almost at the exact time as this diet devotee got up and he settled the issue once for all. Here's what he said. He spoke to the young diet guy and he said, you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is God, don't you? And the diet guy said, absolutely. And would you also agree that since the Lord Jesus Christ is our creator, he asked, and the one who made our bodies, that he would know what is best for these bodies? Yes, absolutely, he would. Then how come, if your diet is right, did the Lord Jesus feed loaves and fishes to 5,000 people, giving them proteins and carbohydrates in the very same meal? Amen. And I wrote down in my notes, it sure is fun to know the Bible. If you know the Bible, you've got answers to a lot of questions people don't know what to do with. Fortunately for us, we have a lot in the Bible about diets. Let me read to you what Jesus said on one occasion. He said, Are you thus without understanding? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him, because it doesn't enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. And Paul concluded in one of his letters, Food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. So Paul goes on and he says, don't get caught up in what you eat. Don't get caught up in the days. He has a whole thing about special days like Sabbath days and feast days and all that. Don't make them the essence of your salvation. I need to tell you that I grew up in a different environment than we have here. I grew up in a legalistic church atmosphere. And it almost made me want to run from the church and not toward it. When I finally discovered the principle of grace, it was like fresh wind blowing through me, and I couldn't get over it. 
Now, I didn't become more tolerant of bad behavior when that happened. No, no, I became more careful because I didn't want to do anything to offend the one who had so wonderfully saved me and put grace in my life. Ladies and gentlemen, the enemy is the one who wants to come and bind you all up with a bunch of rules that don't come from God. We call them the filthy five, the nasty nine, and the dirty dozen. You know what I'm talking about. And the devil says to you, you can be holy and righteous. You can be everything God wants. If you'll just not do these things, and you'll do these things. And what I want to say to you, you know, the best thing you can do is just fall in love with Jesus Christ. Ask Jesus how you're supposed to live your life. Get up every day and say, Lord, I love you. I want to serve you today. I don't want to do anything to disappoint you. Lead me and guide me. Show me the way. And he will. And you'll have joy in your heart. You won't be under the burden of all the rules and regulations and restrictions that people want to put on you as a Christian. Legalism, measuring your own or someone else's spirituality by the ability to keep man-made rules is confining and it's lifeless and it will steal the joy out of your Christian life. And then there's mysticism. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels and intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. What a sentence that is. What Paul is just saying is that if you are not careful, you will get caught up in worshiping things that don't deserve worship. I remember when the angel craze happened some years ago. Do you remember that? I went into a woman's house, and when I walked in, the entire house was covered with angels. All on the walls, on the ceilings, all around. Every, um, there must have been thousands of angels there. Her belief was that if she had all those angels, she could pray to those angels, and they would keep her safe. You never pray to angels. Angels are not God. We joke about having parking angels and all that kind of stuff, but it's just a joke. Angels do not want to be worshipped. They are not worthy of worship. Only God is worthy of worship. So if you're in situations where you pray to angels, you should quit it. That's sinful. Praying to angels is disrespectful. The doctrine of the Gnostics included angel worship. It included sorcery. It included all kinds of stuff. I can't imagine what their worship service was like. Probably like Rita's little altar in her home. Everything is in, nothing's out. When we search for supernatural experiences out of false motivation, what happens is we get proud. And we have to run around and tell everybody about our experiences. I believe God can give you special experiences. I don't know which ones you've had. I've had some experiences where God has done special things in my life. But you know what? You have to be careful when you talk about those with other people that you don't convey to them that because that happened to you, it should happen to them. Nobody ever ultimately comes to Christ the same way. They come in terms of the message is the same, but the experiences they have and the things that happen to them that lead them to Christ, all of them are different. So if you've had an experience with the Lord and it's special and it's scriptural, Enjoy it, but be careful of how you share it because if you're not careful, you're going to convey to other people that if they don't have the exact same experience you had, there's something missing in their life. Wrong. Not true. And then, of course, the last one in this list is asceticism. Let me just summarize that by saying ascetic people believe that if you punish yourself enough, that will get you to godliness. That self 
discipline, self-denial is a way toward God. This is in verses 20 through 23, and you can read them when you get home. Some people literally have bought woolen, scratchy shirts, and they wear these shirts that scratch. It's like itching will make you spiritual. (laughs) Some people think that to be a Christian, you have to fast. Fasting is good. We should probably all do it sometime. But fasting won't get you to heaven. Fasting isn't going to make you a better Christian. All these things that we say we do to ourselves, you don't become a Christian because you hurt yourself. You become a Christian because you accept Jesus Christ. Christ is everything. He's all that you need. He makes you complete. And when you try adding stuff to your faith, when you try inputting stuff into your faith that has nothing to do with your faith, that doesn't make you better. It diminishes you. It makes you less It makes it obvious that you don't really believe that you are complete in Christ. If you're complete in Christ, you need nothing more. Build your relationship in him. Read his word. Pray to him. Worship him. Make Christ everything. And you will have the things that will make your life meaningful. Author Peter Kreeft tells this story about a poor European family who saved for years to buy tickets to sail to America. Once they were at sea, they carefully rationed the cheese and bread they had brought for the journey. After about three days, the younger boy complained to his father, I hate cheese sandwiches. If I don't eat anything else before we get to America, I'm going to die. And his father gave the boy his last nickel and told him to go to the ship's galley and buy himself an ice cream cone. When the boy returned a long time later with a wide smile, his worried dad said to him, Did you get lost? Where were you? I was in the galley, said the little boy, eating ice cream cones and a steak dinner. All that for a nickel? Oh, no, he said. The food on this ship is free. It comes with the ticket. The apostle Paul warned his readers about the false teachers who were offering them bread and cheese instead of steak. They were in danger of forgetting Christ's sufficiency and relying on their own self-effort. We who have trusted Christ for salvation have been assured not only of safe passage to heaven, but of everything we need to live for him here and now. Charles Haddon Spurgeon nailed it when he said this, if you have Christ, you have all. Do not be desponding. Do not give ear to the whisperings of Satan that you are not the children of God. For if you have Christ, you are perfect in him. So don't be intimidated by the spiritual bullies around you. You are complete and righteous in Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. What I want more than anything else is for you to leave here today knowing that if you have Jesus Christ, You have the ultimate goal of life. Does that mean all your problems go away? No, but you have an ally. You have someone to help you. He's not only your Savior. He's your friend. He's your advocate. He's your helper. The Bible says if you need anything, go to him and he'll help you. But don't go away from him to find that help or you will be in worse shape than you ever dreamed because Jesus Christ is everything. Yes, he is. 
He is all you need. That's our chorus, isn't it? Christ is all you need. He is sufficient. He is absolutely everything that is necessary. Well, uh, Monday, we will begin the second half of the book of Colossians as we get into a more practical aspect. The first two lessons uh, from the third chapter are about what it means to be in Christ. And uh, you don't want to miss, this is kind of one of the main themes in Paul's writings. He uses the word in Christ dozens and dozens of times in his writings. But what does it mean? What does it mean for you to be in Christ? We'll talk about that on Monday. In the meantime, I hope you have a great weekend, that you get to your church. I'm very discouraged about some of the statistics that are coming out about people returning to church after COVID. Uh, I mean, if you're still sick, don't go. But if you're not sick, you need to go to church, and you need to be there to be an encouragement. Uh, It's very important that you gather with other believers. Church isn't sitting alone at home. Church is gathering together, according to Hebrews. And uh, we need to be together as God's people. It will be our strength in the days ahead. We need to cultivate that strength even now as we get back to the Lord's house. And then uh, if you haven't already done so, be sure to order your copy of the book, Christ Above All. Uh, This is the study book for this particular series of lessons. You can get your copy of this book by simply sending a gift of any size to Turning Point. And the book will be sent to you. Uh, You'll have it really soon and be able to go ahead and review and follow along as we teach this incredible New Testament book. Ask for your copy when you send your gift today. The message you just heard came to you from Shadow Mountain Community Church and Senior Pastor Dr. David Jeremiah. To share how God is using this ministry in your life, write us at Turning Point for God of Canada, P.O. Box 18098, Delta, B.C., V4L2M4. Visit our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio or call 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of David's new book, Christ Above All, a verse-by-verse study in Colossians to help you truly know who Jesus is. It is yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions. Visit davidjeremiah.ca slash radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us Monday as we continue the series, Christ Above All, here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. If you're looking to enhance your personal or group Bible study, look no further than the Jeremiah Bible Study Series. In each volume, Dr. David Jeremiah helps you understand what the Bible says and how to apply it. Along the way, you will gain insights into the text, identify key themes, and be challenged to apply the truth found in Scripture to your life. Get your copy today. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca slash study. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash study. If you want to learn more about the person of Jesus Christ, the book of Colossians offers an unrivaled portrayal of our Savior. And to help you understand this important book in a deeper way, Dr. David Jeremiah has created a verse-by-verse study called Christ Above All. This helpful book and album are yours when you donate $60 to Turning Point. And with an $80 gift, you'll also receive the Written Word Journal. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca. Every so often, a new list of people's top 10 fears will be published, like the fear of public speaking, the fear of death, and others. But I read about a fear that never makes the list 
but that everyone has experienced. It's the fear of being found out. That's a powerful idea, isn't it? If we are not living an honest life, a transparent life, if we are pretending to be someone we are not, then being found out is probably our greatest fear. Living an honest life, that is, agreeing with God about who we are, is the first step toward living a fearless life. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover how God knows you on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com and get your roadmap for life. Route 66, start your journey home today.